Well, I have a haunting memory from summer workouts when I was in high school. Our junior year, we came back the, the Monday after the 4th of July weekend. And I vividly remember the defensive coordinator looking at all of us and saying, guys, July 4th is over, your summer is over, you're mine. And I thought, man, what happened to June? You know, so, so here, and, and it causes us to think about time in a unique way. It causes us to, to reminisce or think back on, why didn't I goof off more in the month of June this summer? You know, I'm a junior in high school. I don't have responsibilities. No one, no one knows when I wake up or come home. My parents apparently did. But all of a sudden, it feels like we've got a month left of the summer, and this guy's telling me everything is over. We often don't think enough about days, and especially our days. And when we think about our days or our time, when we think about what God has put in front of us and even what has been carried out behind us, we become terrified. I remember one of the most haunting, again, well, I didn't mean to do this, but apparently the theme is being haunted in my intro, but one of the most terrifying moments, uh, I remember being in a, uh, I think it was a cattle pond in northwest uh, northeast Logan County on a friend's ranch, and we were just swimming at night. There were like five of us there. We were swimming in the lake. And all of a sudden, I f- saw this giant moon, and it had a different color than white. And I felt alone, even though I was around friends. And I, and I felt like creation almost was reminding me that you are so small and so in- insignificant, and, and what is out there is incredibly powerful. And I was haunted by the reality of how glorious creation was, but how small and insignificant I became. We are in awe very often of creation because we we understand the smallness within its vastness. Uh, We we see its exposure over everything, and we are reminded that we ourselves are completely out of control, whether you have been caught up and seen a lightning storm come your way. Or you've seen a blaze of fire that is going to wreak havoc on everyone in front of you. Or you feel trapped inside a house because because there is a mountain of snow outside of your building. All of a sudden, you are aware that you are actually not in control of anything. Over the next several months, Lord willing, we'll be going through the first 11 chapters of the book of Genesis where we will be reminded and amazed at so many important things The first 11 chapters of the book of Genesis are in themselves an independent unit where God is telling us through the person of Moses that he made everything and controls everything even when we see that life seems a little bit out of control. The second half of the book of Genesis, which we won't get to at this point in in this season in our church's life together, it's its own unit as well. It's talking about how, how the world came about through God's independently called people. Now, there are a couple reasons why I want us to take a break from the book of Matthew for a long period of time and go into the first several chapters of Genesis. If you've been with us in the book of Matthew, we've been taking, in many ways, phrase by phrase or paragraph by paragraph or narrative by narrative. In the book of Genesis, we're going to take big chunks of Scripture at a time because I want you to see the intentionality of Moses' work in, in crafting together as he was inspired by the Spirit to tell God's people who actually is in charge. But this morning, I want us to just meditate on nine words, or in its original language, in seven words, just one verse from the book of Genesis. And I want us to go through the book of Genesis in this first part for a couple of reasons. The, the first reason is, so if you're using an outline, I'm still in my intro, I'm going to have four points, four reasons why I want us to go through Genesis. The first one is, I want us to be told about who God is. God reveals himself so powerfully and clearly and in an awesome fashion 
through the book of Genesis. Second, I, I think that the book of Genesis, especially the first part, helps explain for us the evening news today. You watch the evening news, you read the, the morning news, you, you hear from other people about what's going on, and you, like me, like everyone else, is just going, what is happening on a daily basis? The book of Genesis explains that. Third, I think the beginning, this, or, well, I know that, that the beginning of this story, the beginning of our scriptures, actually, in a wonderful way, will point us more clearly to the story and the person of Christ who will be unfolded so specifically and clearly later on in the New Testament. But he doesn't just show up randomly there. We see all of God's glory starting from the beginning. And the, and the fourth reason, which will have two parts to it, the fourth reason why we're doing Genesis is I think Genesis will ground us with a unique sense of confidence in God's word and submitting ourselves to his glory. And I want to I demonstrate that in two ways. When you think about having confidence in God's word, I want you to first think about how you and I will conceptually understand what is true. Okay, from what truth is, delineates from what truth is, has all kinds of different pursuits that you and I might go into. One of those would be scientific, right? So as you might be a science person or you love science or that's maybe what you teach or you like to be involved in or any kind of, you know, magazine with like a spaceship on it or a planet, you're like, I want to look at that, you know, for like three weeks. I wanted to be an astronaut when I was 13 until I realized that I'm actually super claustrophobic and I don't want to have anything to do with space, right? If you, if you are intrigued by that, what science properly is, is the pursuit of knowledge that is uh, understandable and observable as it submits itself to God's truth. So oftentimes we, we flip that, or, or unbelievers might flip that a way around where we might not submit ourselves to God's truth, but try to submit ourselves to other things. But when we think about what is true out there, there was a non-believing scientist in 1882 named Herbert Spencer who won a Nobel Peace Prize by, after a lifetime of trying to understand what is real, what is not real, how do we categorize things, how, do, how does everything come about or form, he, he realized that, that everything that we can see and understand can come down to five specific scientific terms, time, force, action, space, and matter. These, these are what Herbert Spencer understood to be the manifestations of all scientific phenomena. So everything that is out there can be put into one of five buckets, time, force, action, space, and matter. Now, you and I, as Bible believers, as Christians, as understanding that God has given us everything that we need, we look at that and we go, I've heard that before. In the beginning, time, God, force, created, action, space, the heavens, matter, the earth. The discovery that this person had had already been given to us from God's good truth. So, so you'll have confidence in going through the book of Genesis by just understanding that God has given us everything that we need to know him by and can enjoy all of the fruits of his labor. So it gives you confidence in pursuing him with an understanding that, that he has made everything. But second, I think it'll, you'll be given confidence in the book of Genesis by understanding the author of Moses. So Moses, and we know this, Moses wrote the book of Genesis. Moses was a person in a place, in a time. And understanding who Moses is and having the confidence that Moses is inspired, think about God is inspiring Moses to, to write the book of Genesis in a certain way towards a certain group of people for their confidence, it will just build up, I think, just an amazing amount of energy uh, going forward. I want to illustrate that. 
in one way, and I hope I don't uh, belabor this too long. My, my sister, who I talk to on a regular basis and love so deeply, my sister has, uh, is divorced, and her and her previous husband communicate to each other through what is called a parenting coordinator. So, so that things are clearly on the table and we're not misunderstanding ourselves, they, they will email each other or text message each other through a, a parenting coordinator who's supposed to kind of help police or let's, let's, you know, we're getting carried away or it's getting too emotional or let's keep the facts on the table. Over time, she'll send me clips, uh, screenshots of some of the emails that will come towards her just to say like, I don't know what to say, or like, hey, please pray for me, or like, man, this is great. Yeah, we're communicating or whatever. So every now and then, uh, I'll get a text that'll just show me something that was said to her, and that's fine to share those things around. But over time, over time, I noticed that there was something a little bit different between some of these messages. The way that the signature occurred on the bottom of some of these messages were different than other signatures. For example, one would be a period ending the email, space, hyphen, initial, initial, hyphen. That was it. And they had a certain characteristic to them. They were fine, polite, nice, whatever, helpful. Then there was another pattern, period, enter, enter, hyphen, space, initial, initial, space, hyphen. And I thought, interesting. I'm going to look into this a little bit more. So you can imagine me, 3 a.m., clearly not having anything to do. I'm going to dissect, like a mad scientist, all of these emails. And over time, I noticed that there's a different sense of language used here than here. There's a different level of helpfulness here than here. And then you kind of understand there's a different author here than over here. This one doesn't have paragraph breaks. This one is like three pages long. This one is using normal words. This one is using a thesaurus. And then I remembered there's another agent at play who came in unwantingly a while ago, who was seeking to wreak havoc. Now, what do you do when you receive something that is helpful? You pursue it, choose it, you go through it. What do you do when you receive something unhelpful that's just meant for war? Delete. I say all that to demonstrate the person of Moses has been guided in a certain way to encourage those who would place their trust in God's good providence so that as they go through battle, as they go through war, as there is weariness all around them, as there are competing agencies of, of this God, this many God, those things, this success, this terror, they can go, no, 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 no. In the beginning, our God made everything, and everything else is fool's gold around it. All right, so I, I want you to have confidence in pursuing the work of Genesis so that you can pursue God in his glory all the more. So those are a couple of reasons why we're doing the book of Genesis. Now, in this, I want us to see this first verse as separating itself really cleanly, really helpfully in four independent parts. Four independent parts, and that'll serve as the outline uh, for this morning. The first, I, I think that we can see in this text that God is clearly demonstrating to us and beginning a story to us, a story of time, a story of God, a story of power, and a story of everything. So first, let's look at this as a story of time. In the beginning, the Bible opens up. This book opens up in a unique way, but there have been so many other books that have come after it that open up in the same way. For example, I bet if I said, once upon a time, you would actually know how that story ends. They live happily ever after. 
However it starts, once upon a time, you know that through all the trial and tumult in this, in this book, there will be an ending point, and it will say, and then they lived happily ever after. Ours opens up just like that, using, using linguistic uh, tools to tell us that in the beginning, and it's, after, it's if they were going to say at the end, they lived happily ever after. Now, how do we know this? Well, in English translation, ours says in the beginning. In the Hebrew language, it was just beginning or the beginnings. The first word of the Bible is the word that was translated later by, into Latin named Genesis. That's why the title of the book is Genesis, because that's the first word of this book. In fact, a lot, most, most all, I think of all the books in the Bible, why are they named the way they're named in the Old Testament? Because that was the first word. Numbers, guess what the first word was? Numbers. Deuteronomy, guess what the first word was? And it's original language, those things. And here we have that this is clearly going to be about a book of beginnings. The first part of this word is actually, though, the first part of a pair. You think of uh, once upon a time, that's the first part of a pair. They lived happily ever after. That's the second part of the pair. The beginning part is the first part of a pair. And what Moses so wonderfully does is as the story weaves and interlocks together, there are foreshadows of an end that have taken place. He uses the term latter days or the later days, or end times, or the end. That's going to be used all over the first five books of the Bible, and then towards the very end we see what that is looking at in our own scriptures. Now, first part of this word anticipates a second part. The very first uh, word of the Bible, which takes us all the way back, is already hinting at a conclusion in the scriptures. If we were curious people, we'd want to trace that through and find the very end. And people have done this. This is actually the pursuit of biblical theology. So if you've ever taken a class on biblical theology or you want to grow in biblical theology, what you're doing is starting at the beginning and see how God has unfolded his revelation all the way to the end. If we're curious, people would do that. And, and this phrase, these phrases, it's always talking about, so this anticipating in the beginning, anticipating an end, these phrases as they unfold, they're always talking about, get this, a special time at the end. They're always pointing to a very special person who will show up in a special time at the end and to complete what was started in the beginning. We, we see this often in the Pentateuch where the one who will come again has certain uh, personality types or he'll appear a certain way or he's from a certain lineage. We even see in the uh, more prophetic books throughout the Old Testament where they're talking about this Messiah who will come will have a certain aura that he'll bring with them. And then when Christ shows up, he's pointing us back to all of these predictions in the Old Testament saying, you, you've known about me coming from a long time. You, you should have anticipated me coming even in the beginning. And Moses sets people off on a journey through Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, and even through our case in the New Testament. Now, all that to say, Genesis is about a particular time. Genesis, or think of yourself, you are a story within a specific point of time. Now, people don't think well about time, and I'm not going to be up here and say that I think well about time. We ignore time very often. We live as if it doesn't exist, and then we get anxious when we recognize that time just marches on, or it seems to go faster and faster and faster, and crisis happens in our lives when the sense of time seems to shake us to our core because we recognize we can't control time. We seem to be just caught up in it, like you're in one of those pools that just carries you off to the end. But Moses is wanting to ground us in a particular understanding of time. 
He doesn't want us to ponder about time endlessly, never living life in the moment. He wants us to ground us first in the very beginning. Because when we ignore time, we become nihilistic or we become dangerous. It's a dangerous way to live. But Moses wants to ground God's people in a proper view of seeing things according to his will according to his way, according to his time. And what he's saying, that from our perspective, there is a definite beginning. For in the Bible shows the beginning in an understandable way. It is understandable for us just conceptually, and and people try to pick this apart, but conceptually, when did things begin? In the beginning. And we know that. And all of the pursuits of science that you're going to be caught up in is trying to dismantle that or say that there's no sense of beginning. But the more telescopes we invent, the more microscopes that we come up with, the more powerful pursuit of science we discover is that the very beginning of our scriptures is actually, actually true. And if we submit ourselves to the reality of time, then what Moses says is we'll be grounded in truth all the more. It shows us the end in an understandable way. The beginning did definitely happen. And what the scriptures will unfold on and on again is that along with a beginning that definitely did happen, there will be an end. And it will be as true as the beginning. Wisdom comes from embracing time like this. Psalm 90 says, from embracing our numbered days, we glorify and can rest in who God is. And we are surprised all the time by time. Little kids, if you're here and you're smaller, you are at a fun time in life. And you will grow up to be bigger and taller, and you will think that that is not fun. But growing up is actually incredibly fun. You may think that you will be small forever, but you won't. I thought I was going to be small forever. I thought my days would just be filled with Lincoln Logs and Legos. And they're not, just to be clear. We think of time in unique ways. I've often been called very young. And there's been one or two times that I can think of where I've responded, I don't think I'm that young. I think you're that old. It never went well for me. But <laughs> we don't think about time itself, but we need to recognize that the story that God has given us, the truth uh, that is out there, is that his story has time within it. There was a beginning, and there will be an end. The very first word of the Bible, beginning, already anticipates an end, just like you. I think if you just meditate on this word, friend, do you meditate on the reality that you are within time, under the control and providence of God? Now, that may freak you out, or that may really encourage you, knowing that at the end, he will make all things new and good, finally. Or, knowing at the end, you will be part of destruction. But either way, we have to recognize, what is time? It had a beginning. So first, this story is a story about time. But second, maybe most importantly, this is a story about God. This is a story about God. In the beginning, God. The word God is used 4,500 times in the Bible. The word Lord is used around 8,000 times in the Bible. Guess what the Bible is about? Guess what your life ought to be about? Have you ever seen someone nowadays have their picture taken just with a phone, nothing special, just, hey, can you take a picture of me in front of this building? Have you ever been asked to take someone's picture? 
You know, you, you, they say, hey, can you take our picture? And you grab it and you take the picture. And then what immediately happens after you take someone's picture? They grab the phone. They don't put it in their pocket. They don't say, hey, thanks. They immediately look at themselves. They're not looking at the Grand Canyon. They're not looking at some tower in Chicago. They're looking at themselves. It's our obsession here that we often say, here, let me see it. But we actually mean, hey, let me see me. It's our obsession to know what we look like if we can help it. If you're given a family photo, what do your eyes always go first? Maybe it's at the end of a school year and they start divvying out yearbooks. You think of all the story of what this high school was and this middle school was, all the clubs that are there. What's the very first page that you turn to? Your photo. It's like there's this me magnet, no matter what we deal with. We're good at looking at us. I'm good at looking at me. I'm obsessed with wanting to see me as the point of whatever I'm going through. And when you see a picture of a family photo or a group photo and you say something like, oh, that, that pic is really good. You can go ahead and post that. What, what are you actually saying? I look good in that photo. Or if you say, oh, can we, can we take another photo? Don't, don't post the picture of you know, my beautiful, pretty wife. Don't do that one. What are you actually saying? You don't think you look good in it, right? And it's all about you all of a sudden. And there's one particularly dangerous way to read Genesis. There is one particularly dangerous way to read Genesis. One way to completely miss the point of the story and his Bible is if you do exactly that on a regular basis. Where, where am I? What, what is this saying about me? We often open up the Bibles on maybe a Tuesday morning, having our perfect coffee right there and setting the aura of a living room. Maybe we can turn the fireplace on because, you know, holy feelings happen when we have everything in the right order. And, and what do we typically ask God to do in that moment? God, teach me something about myself so that I can have a better day. Instead of just meditating and being amazed at the glory of God in this moment, when we open it up, and when we scan past everything else and everyone looking for someone who's looking like us, who lives like us, who thinks and understands like us, is, am I like Peter? Is Peter like me? Is Jeremiah as strong as I can be? We often look for ourselves. But Genesis in the Bible, friend, is a story about God. Look at Genesis 1. Just scan it with your eyes. What are the things that pop out when you look at Genesis 1? Scan the pages. What, what seems to point out there? You, you rightly say just how many times the word God is used. God created. God said. God separated. God saw. God said. God called. And God saw. And God said. And God saw. And God said. And God made. And God set. And God saw. And God said. And God created. And God saw. And God blessed. And God saw. And made. And God created. Over 35 times, or 35 times in one chapter, is God used. So friends, this is a story about God, not anything else. The creation account doesn't begin by arguing for God either. This isn't some demonstration on, okay, let's start with the doctrine of God and let's explain him away, and then let's get into the narrative of the text. Moses assumes God is there. Moses describes as God being absolutely present. He doesn't give an apologetic of God first and then demonstrating on how God works. He just says that God goes. Moses doesn't begin by arguing for God. Genesis begins by declaring God. It assumes God. It explodes with God. In the very beginning, God. 
There's this very famous quote that is um, linked to the person of Charles Spurgeon, even though no one can actually trace it to Charles Spurgeon specifically, but it, it definitely sounds like something that he would say. Uh, and, and he was being questioned on, on uh, he was asked to defend the Bible. He was asked to defend the Bible and then the person of God. And Spurgeon said something like, defend the Bible? I'd rather defend the lion than the Bible. You don't defend the Bible. You just open its cage and you let it roar. In many ways, how does this story begin? In the beginning, God. Over and over again, we see him acting. He asserts, Moses asserts, he puts the pen to the paper and God seems to explode on the scene. And then Paul, thousands of years later, also refused to explain God's existence to people who are trying to say, all right, so argue the existence of God. And how did Paul react to that? We see in the book of Romans, basically him just saying, they know. They know he's there. They, they can feel it naturally. They can, they can understand it conceptually in their heart. They can test out what it means to pursue God and not pursue God, even to the point where if they hate him so much, their mind will be so depraved that it will be almost given over to the things of the world. But they know. Everyone knows. You may suppress it. You may keep it down, but you know that there is a creator. You suppress it because actually it haunts you, because you wonder if it's against you or for you, because you recognize that there is something bigger and greater and more grander outside of your control. You know that God is there. And Genesis 1 is not just a story first about you or about me. It's about God. And I wonder if you're here today, your level of comfort with that. How comfortable are you with the truth and reality that this is a story about God first? About, and it just describes how awesome he is over and over again, how powerful he is again and again. One of the things that a Christian is, is someone who is encouraged, not disappointed, but encouraged by the reality that the one who is out there, who is controlling everything, does not submit himself to me. It is a Christian feature to recognize that, that he submits himself to no one. But we, in our good work, submit ourselves to him. It's scary oftentimes because it's a loss of control, but it's far safer than anything else. It is actually very offensive for us to go up to someone and say, you're not in control of your own life. You don't hold everything together. This world isn't about you. We've, we've heard from elementary years, you are special. And if you don't love yourself, then no one else will love you. But in reality, it's not about us at all. And to the Christian that says, I hope not. You know, if it was about me, then, I'm, then no one is in control of anything. But this is a story about God. You and I have our place. And we'll look at that next week and our place in the midst of creation. It is a beautiful and encouraging thing. But, but this is not our story. We're just part of it. And the way to ruin the Bible is to make this story about you or about me. Because it's a story about God. Now, third, I think we also see that this is a moment and time that is about and a demonstration of power. This is a story about incredible power. In the beginning, God created. That word there, created, is different than how you and I might use it on a regular basis. In Genesis and throughout the Bible, Moses says that people, meaning you and I or our ancestors, Moses says that throughout the Bible that people make, people build. You know, you might make a sandcastle. You might build a house. 
You may put a spreadsheet together showing your financial awareness or ability. We, we make things all the time. We build things all the time. But that is actually a different word that is used in the scriptures. The, the word create, and this is really awesome. I got it from a friend. The word create is only ever used of God in the Old Testament. The word create, bara, is only ever used of God in the Old Testament. Now, I'm not a creative person. Uh, if you were to ask me to do something creative, I would probably just get really nervous and say, I have no talent. Maybe the only creative thing that I do on a regular basis is to just craft a sermon, which I think has some level of creativity, though I don't want it to be too creative. As you all know, I'm not, I'm not up here being that creative or spontaneous or anything. But I think sermon writing is the only creative thing I do. And, and here's what I do when I create a sermon. I take a book that I didn't write, and I read it with eyes that were given to me. And over time, my eyes have gotten worse, so then I use corrective lenses so that I can see words on a page of a book that I didn't write. And I study this book with a mind that was not only given to me, but then through various people, trained me on how to think logically or practically and with greater understanding. And then I take a pencil. I'm a pencil guy, not necessarily a pen guy, because I make a lot of mistakes, right? So I take a number two pencil with a cross point logo on it, because that's how much I'm in this. Or you might take a pen. Sometimes when I use a pen to, you know, sign a statement or something else, I use a Pigma Micron 08, which came to me, not by my own invention, but through Amazon, its cheapest price. And then on a piece of paper, I write down notes or thoughts that are bound together as the week comes on, and I use the pieces of paper that are bound together that were made by New Year calendar. And then I grab and use more books and other books, which I also didn't write, off of a shelf that I didn't build who was built for me by an older friend with wood that I didn't chop down and I, that came from a tree that I didn't plant or water. And then I take, after a little bit of time, I take a computer, which came to me from factories and mines of other geniuses in places like China and Silicon Valley. And I try to place those things on a word processor logically, spatially, and intuitively so that I can then understand it here when I'm talking to you. And there, I type out paragraphs with words using letters and punctuation from a language that I didn't create, nor discovered, nor taught myself. And then I think through on a Friday or Saturday night when I realize that Sunday is very much coming. I think about stories or applications from newspapers that were brought to me by a delivery man at 5 a.m. And then I read on a phone, which I often do way too late at night because I'm grasping at straws at this point. And then on a Saturday night, I get into bed after leaving my home office, and I think I don't know anything. So I search Wikipedia to find something that will punch back in this case. And then I wake up early and finish and pray to the God who created the heavens and earth, and I say, please help this do something. Now within that, I created nothing. And then I do it again. Because the God who spoke to us from his word is also the God who created everything from nothing. Think about the, the it, it is even hard to grasp. There is, there is nothing out there that he was playing with that he could then bring together, which would be called a world or a pulpit or carpet. There was, no, there was nothing there that he was arranging. And then, it was, nothing was there. And then everything was there. Like it doesn't make sense, except it was God who created. And you and I we just make stuff. You make a sandwich. I make a sermon. God created everything from nothing. Moses would never say that we created anything. That would be blasphemous. 
Everything of us is borrowed. This morning, this second or third hand borrowed, biblically to create, is to take nothing, no books, no canvases, no dirt, no atoms, no neutrons, no nothing, and from it, from nothing, produce something. And the rest of the chapter demonstrates that beautifully, how from nothing, everything came. Friends, behold God's power in creation. Everything that you and I see, Who hasn't had a religious experience going to a state park or a national park? And you go out there and you're like, look at the fog coming over the mountains. I don't understand dihydrogen monoxide. How did fog happen? It is unbelievable the power that God does at the beginning. And rest assured, it is him alone. So as these wandering Israelites are going through the wilderness, Moses reminds them, as much as you're going through, God created everything, and he is behind you. We use in our own uh, liturgy on a regular basis, we, we start with what is called a prayer of adoration, and I kind of give little notes on what a prayer of adoration means. So if you're new with us or a guest, and you're like, I have no idea what a prayer of adoration means. I just know kind of conceptually what prayer is, or I've been praying a long time. What's a prayer of adoration? A prayer of adoration, it says there in the handout, our approach in worship begins with our exalting the greatness of God and expressing our deepest dependence on Him in all things. In the beginning, God created. And if He created everything, meaning everything submits itself to his sustaining power, then we ought to as well. And by doing that, we behold God in his glory. Approaching God through his glorious truth is what we are called to do. Moses, <laughs> I love this. You, you kind of see a little bit of Moses' personality, recognizing that historically there are competing religions against the Israelites. Moses here at the very beginning is just taunting them. Hey, you've got your many gods and other gods. Our God created everything, he says at the beginning. That, that is warlike language there. And as the Israelites are weary, he, he almost takes their faces, lifts them up to the skies. And as we hear later in Psalm 96, verse 5, for all of the gods of the peoples are idols, but Yahweh made the heavens. Or in Jeremiah 10, verse 11, the gods that didn't make the heavens and the earth will perish from the earth and from under the heavens. Verse 12, it's he who made the earth by his power, who established the word by his wisdom and by his understanding. He has stretched out the heavens for us to see. Friends, behold God's power. At the very beginning, there was nothing that we could understand and then everything was on the table. Now, one more thing before I move to the final point. If he has all that kind of power to create all from nothing, then surely he can deliver you friend, wherever you are, from your enemies. If he can do that, he can do this. If he can make everything from nothing, then surely he can forgive you of your sins. The, the holy creator who, who you and I naturally are at war against and what is called our sin, he can reconcile that. And you go, how, can, how could he ever reconcile that? Remember the one who made everything from nothing and then will take your sin and blot it out completely. Surely he can remake you into a new creation. He can keep you until the very end. He can heal you forever. Surely he who rules over the galaxies that he created can rule over your life very well. This is a story about his power. Lastly and finally, this is the genesis of everything. This is the beginning of everything. This story is about everything. Genesis 1.1 and Genesis as a whole shows us a story about everything. In the beginning, God created 
everything. Now, have your attention drawn to this final phrase. Look at it. It's a couple of words. That's why I think this, uh, in many ways, this, this verse is actually almost like a title for the rest of the chapter. It almost is a summary statement or a thesis of what is then going to be unfolded in the rest of Genesis 1. It said that he made the heavens, he created the heavens and the earth. Now, when Moses says here, heavens and earth, those words he used could very often be translated as skies or lands. Elsewhere in Genesis and next week, uh, it'll make sense seeing that the heavens as skies and and you see that, or the earth as land or ground dirt. You can conceptually almost draw that out on a map. But before you do that, it is very important to know that that is not what Moses is talking about here. He's not talking about something on the ground and then something in the air. There's a, there's a deeper way that he is using intentional language in this case. When Moses says the heavens and the earth, this is a very special phrase, a poetic device that is called merism, M-E-R-I-S-M. Write it down, M-E-R-I-S-M, merism. It is a rhetorical device where, they take, where you might take two contrasting things that refer to a whole, two polar opposite things to make a very special point. And this will use, be used later on in the scriptures. Let me bring my attention, bring your attention to Psalm 139. You know, David prays, God, when I sit down and when I rise, you discern my thoughts from afar. Now, which thoughts does God know in David's life? All of them. Or Psalm 103, verse 12. As far as the east is from the west, so far he removed our sins from us. Do you see this? How far has God removed their sins from them, David's sins from him, the furthest place that you can even imagine. Or Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and Moses is saying that God created everything, everything, using this linguistic phrase, high as you can see, as far down as you can look, atoms, galaxies, water, oceans, snowflakes, avalanches, minnow in the sea, a whale in the ocean. He created you and he created me and he created all of it. And he made all of it unique and all of it special. He didn't create you though like a Ford Motor Company might make a truck where they're all basically the same. He created in a unique way. You were created in a unique way to where you are completely different. I mean, we all learn in elementary school that all the snowflakes, we all make them. We use the scissors to cut them out. Everyone's snowflake, even if you line them up together, everyone's snowflake is different. All of us are different. Uh, uh, Kids, when you were born in the beginning, when you emerged onto the earth, it'd be like, it'd be like the angels in heaven would be clapping and shouting saying, he did it again. He created something that we've never seen before. And he did that completely out of nothing. It is amazing what God has done. He created everything. Genesis 1-1 isn't just a showcase of the origin of earth, though it is. It is an invitation for us to completely be absorbed in worshiping him. It is an invitation to worship. It is a call to worship. One of my favorite memories when I lived in Washington, D.C., they have just massive buildings everywhere, but the National Cathedral on the northwest side of D.C. 
It is, it is one of the newer cathedrals in America, and it is just so powerful in a lot of reasons. But my favorite part is this stained glass circular window in the very back. And I, I think it's like 30 feet tall. I mean, man, alive. And it is powerful so that all the light that comes in this cathedral, that stained glass window is in the formation of what is called creation. The most glorious and vibrant colors and at its center, it is starting to form something that looks specific. So as the light of God shines on us when we worship him, we know that it is coming from a place where there was a beginning and is love through the meantime until an end. Psalm 95 verse 6 says, Oh, let us come, worship, and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, it says, our maker. Nehemiah 9, chapter 6 says, You are the Lord, you alone. You have made heaven and the heaven of heavens with all their hosts, the earth and all that is on it, the sea and all that is in them. You preserve all of them, and the host of heaven worships you. If you've got a Bible, turn to Revelation chapter 4, very end, Revelation chapter 4. Revelation chapter 4, verse 9. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him, who is seated on the throne and worship him, who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory, honor, and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Recognizing that it is God who made everything is an invitation for us to worship him for the rest of our lives. All of it has purpose. All of it has meaning. All of you here today have purpose and meaning because you were made by God, because everything was happily, joyfully, beautifully, personally designed for God's glory made by his good hand. But also everything is owned by him. Everything is accountable to him. Everything is claimed and will be finally claimed by their maker. They will be judged by their creator. Everything is under his authority and there's something out there. We all recognize that there is someone out there. And he's not just abstractly living, but he sees you. He knows you, and someday you will see him. And our response from this text is to have our face completely on him so that we do see him. When we do see him, we will know him because of all his wondrous works. Let's pray. Our gracious and heavenly Father, we thank you for the joy that you give us from your word. We thank you that we can marvel at you for our entire lives because of who you are eternally, because of what you did for us in time, but also the power that we can rest, as it says in the Psalms, under your wing. Lord, we pray that you would guide us and that we would have hearts that are thankful for your provisional care. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.